very well conclude with is an essential part of this, uh, this topic because it's this question of despair and making peace with despair is is a profoundly religious spiritual one it's one that doesn't involve uh, or cannot be resolved through making the world a different place or through making um, existence different from the way that it is which is the which has been the normal movement of civilization that's on the external level but this is a, a matter of understanding where not just difficulties arise but where the feeling of being oppressed by them actually occurs not where there is sickness where there is violence where there are problems in the world which we can, which we can always point out which are which are numerous and come and go with time, but where that feeling of being bound to it, oppressed by it, really occurs, and how constant that feeling is, even when in a situation such as a few moments of meditation, there really isn't anything particularly dreadful happening, anything that one can't expect, anything that one can really is, is unfair or unjust or shouldn't be the way it is. Uh, for those of you who have practiced meditation to any degree will recognize this sign of feeling oppressed, feeling bound, feeling stuck with. Um, and the, the despair or the pain or the difficulty that arises through just being stuck with something that you don't like, even if that thing is not in itself so particularly um, huge. Just being stuck with a, a mind that has a, a painful memory in it. You know, if, we, if we looked at the problems of the world and said, you know, there's disease, there's warfare, there's hunger, we wouldn't really say normally that memory it could be a great campaign to eradicate painful memories from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Or thinking. People can experience despair just through thinking when they don't want to think. They're having a mind that's restless, uncertain, unsteady, through being in a state of doubt, un- not quite knowing what to do. So that the ways that we can experience uh, conflict discontentments are numerous the feeling of being oppressed by it being bound down by it struggling with it is essentially a spiritual one one that occurs in what we can call the mind the heart, the soul, the spirit some kind of inequality of the, of the, the psyche some aspect that perhaps animals don't have a reflective quality, something that actually steps back from experience and says, I don't like this, this shouldn't be this way, stop this. And an extra dimension that can become rather like a, like a tensor, an extra dimension of the mind that can become a, 
the painful malignant tumour which uh, we feel oppressed by. Now this experience uh, can be, this thing is being oppressed by, as I said, can be uh, triggered off by innumerable things. And contrary-wise, the aim of religion, the aim of the spiritual path, is to, having understood or considered it a possibility that in fact the, the main problem of our life is just this one problem. It's not that the government is unfair, not that one isn't getting enough money, not even that one has hunger or sickness not even the one isn't love, not even the one has pain, not even there is violence, but the one essential problem is the feeling bound down by it in this reflective aspect of the mind. And having considered so that through this, in one stroke, through clarifying, through aligning, through releasing and resolving this aspect of the mind we can experience even in predicaments that can be difficult, painful, uh, unpleasant, we can experience a quality of at least patience, a quality of equanimity, quality of, of serenity, taste of freedom, of release. So to have come around to this question is a sign of a mind gradually turning more fully around the problem of human existence and seeing what, what, exactly, what exactly is it, uh, what is our despair. Through not understanding this, the Buddha said, through not having understood clearly, we continually strive and struggle and wearily trudge around aims and ambitions, causes, motives, campaigns, wars, crusades, birth after birth, trying to put an end to it all and just in fact stirring it all up and making it uh, at least as painful as it was before, not really getting anywhere. When we consider the course of human history, just in terms of, of net despair, not of discomfort, we can say perhaps that we are, if there was any way to objectively measure uh, comfort and security, perhaps we are in, a, in a leagues apart from our prime, uh, primeval ancestors where one can expect to live for three or four decades, no, three or f um, sorry, not three or four decades, but... 70, 80 years as a reasonable lifespan where one can have heat warmth to the body at the touch of a switch one can travel around <coughs> one can experience all different kinds of food and nourishment one can get medical attention one can communicate one can uh, experience sublime refined states of joy and happiness through the through the arts, through music, entertainment, um, reaches of philosophy, etc., etc., etc. 
the refinement of our life is is tremendous. And yet the quality of of suffering is still a, a powerful one. We don't suffer because of uh, being chased out of our cave by a cave bear or the head of your flint axe getting broken off or the Trojans attacking or the um, getting sight of the Black Death. But we still suffer because our computer breaks down, our lawnmower goes on the blink, central heating packs up, TV set blows a fuse, car breaks down, and all kinds of new diseases, autoimmune diseases that seem to viruses and allergies and, and nervous complaints and strange remote disorders that seem to constantly plague humanity no matter how many they wipe out. I read an article in the paper recently which brought up as a consideration from the World Health Organization that the, the current pandemic of the AIDS disease was, could be there's a strange uh, correlation to the attempts to eradicate smallpox that wherever there were massive smallpox campaigns there, in those areas AIDS has been most prevalent something to do with the, the use of the smallpox vaccine creating a kind of entry point for this relatively weak AIDS virus to, to, to creep in so as, as fast as we get rid of one thing one problem we seem to encounter a next as fast as we develop a, a quicker speedier way to do something we also find ourselves uh, frustrated by it breaking down so the, the quality of frustration one can experience now is still, is still huge one could say it's even more because our expectations with these wonderful machines like this amazing tape recording thing here you know which I expect like you know, 20 years ago just to be able to have a facsimile of a, facsimile of a human voice that you could listen to again was, was like magic but I expect one could experience a great deal of suffering over the exact crispness and clarity of this recording <laughs> you say you know there's a, there's a faint background hiss or the microphone was too close so there's slight peaks of sound and jagged edges to it it's not rounded out enough when you're listening to it you see that what's happened that essentially we haven't really resolve the problem we just transfer it to a more refined level our expectations go up as our standards go up nowadays what a nuisance to have to spend say nine hours getting between London and Edinburgh nine or ten hours whereas what 150 years ago to do it in a fortnight was a, was a miracle without getting coshed by a highwayman or stuck in the in the peat bogs up near the borders so of course fly 45 minutes but then you still have to wait that intolerable time going through the airport to get there an hour early 
What a nuisance to have to wait so that the journey may take you three hours. It's a nuisance, isn't it? Now, we expect to be able to get around very quickly so that a car, when I was, you know, even in my own lifetime, say 10, uh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, or, or, or 25 years ago, not everybody had a car. You know, if you had a car on the street where I was, you know, it was, you, were, you were somebody. And a vehicle, and you'd go out once a, on the weekends in the car. It was like you know, the, the treat. You'd go out, we'd go out, drive all the way to, out to out to Watford and back <laughs> for a day out. <laughs> uh, all that way. And we'd get up to 35, 40 miles an hour doing so. And now, of course, you know, if you're in, if you're in London, you don't even regard Watford as being somewhere else. It's just the it's just the outer bit of London, isn't it? And one expects to be able to cruise along at least 65 miles an hour for most of the way. And of course, the machines that one has developed to to perform these magical, miraculous feats are so refined that they break down, and one is left what even more helpless than before because. Perhaps 150 years ago, if your horse got colic, you could probably give it some oats, kick it in the head, or wrap it up in a blanket, and the thing would get up on its feet, and you'd know what to do. Or if you, you know, before you had a horse, if you got, if you hurt yourself, you'd know what to do, just on the physical level. You could do something about it, or you could not do something about it. But nowadays, with the, the machinery that we use just to fulfill our everyday expectations is so complex we can't fix them what happens if say that what happens when the electricity when there's a power cut the TV goes off the lights go off and this happened a few years ago in New York the only thing that happened was the birth rate shot up (laughs) 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 people didn't know what else to do with their time. <laughs> they sit in the darkness, whereas what our ancestors sitting in the darkness was, was normal. You just go to sleep, or you light, a, you light up a rush lantern or something of that nature. But now, the, the electricity goes off, it's probably, it can kill people, can't it? Because some people are living on systems that require constant power going in. You, you can't have no way of heating your house without electricity. Clocks go. The whole, the whole of the reality breaks down. And one has no real power over whether electricity is going to be there or not, let alone the posts, the, the, uh, the waste disposal, the water. So our life is one where we've increasingly abstracted ourselves from having immediate control over our environment and we're in a a powerless position which means that one is always living actually on the edge of a possible tip a possible plunge into loss, into fear into isolation, into uncertainty let alone the, 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 the often repeated risks of, of nuclear holocausts, warfare, etc. 
happening all the time. So the human um, being at this time is a very anxious one. Now, con- considering this uh, this problem, you say, "What can what can we what can we do about it?" Well, one begins to to understand how we've wh- why we've got ourselves into this kind of state, and uh, look at the motivations that that cause this this uh, this um, Fragility, this frailty of life. It's essentially human beings always trying to get more out of the sensory condition that there is. And one is always trying to cheat somehow, cheat death, cheat age, cheat disease, cheat gets past the the, the limitations that nature is always throwing up, the weather, the environment. <coughs> length, distance, the seasons. The human being is one who's always trying to control nature and doing it relatively well with the paying the price that I've just mentioned before, is that in our attempts to control nature we, ex- we have refined our position to one where we're, we've become very dependent upon controlling nature so that one has lost essentially the inner or has no longer the access to the inner resilience, endurance, patience, or, or resourcefulness of the spirit. Um. <clears throat> so our lives are one where the this uh, trying to make more than is possible out of the sensory predicament. Now, mostly this is. One can see this is not uh, not an, not a not evil <coughs> or even uh, foolish, but it has to be. One has to keep it in perspective that the 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 quality of the human being is one who has the possibility to establish order, to establish a certain um, improvement of life. We seem to have that that instinct, that kind of drive. And the problem is that we're not really applying it in the right place. Not that we shouldn't shouldn't try to improve or make things better or make the place more peaceful or happier, but actually the whole frustration of it, the whole tangle of it, the whole feeling of trying to get around and trying to um, overcome things and then another obstacle shooting up becomes because one is really putting a lot of effort and energy into an area which isn't the most fruitful field to cultivate. You know? It's like trying to grow wheat on, on rubble and you have to put a lot of stuff into that rubble to make it fertile enough to grow wheat. But if you plant it on fertile soil, there's no you don't have to put so much effort into it. 
And when we're looking for peace or contentment on the sensory level, this is rather like trying to grow wheat on rubble. Uh, the, and as long as people only perceive themselves as sensory creatures, then they always feel this frustration and this inner despair because the sensory condition is essentially a fragile one, one where we don't have ultimate control or anything more really than association with. And it's one that always is impermanent, at least everything that is sensory dies. So when I mean a sensory condition, I don't just mean um, just purely physical or tangible sensations. I mean everything that one can hear or see, anything that, that can't, any realities that arise through through hearing things, through seeing things, through touching things, through tasting things, and the realm of thought, the realm of the brain, which is a huge realm that we live in. Notice how we, as human beings, we develop this extraordinarily well. In great ideas, philosophies, religions, um, systems, to make the world a better place to live in, more peaceful, more orderly, like the, the, just the systems of organising the society, uh, kingship, where you have, you know, you follow a powerful leader, it's got it's good points to it, it means that everybody just follows and shuts up and you let this person have their way and things go at least in one direction. So that creates a certain order, quite a good idea. Then after that, well, what about like shared power so that the, the limitations of that one individual don't become the, the law of the land? So you have kind of a group of wise people who will advise. But even then, what about if they become a power group that becomes separate from, from everybody so we can have democracies? And then democracies tend to be influenced by, by the power of, of commerce, the economy, so that you can always bribe a populace, you can always do, do that. So what about if everybody just had shared every, all their wealth, so communism, etc. Great ideas to make the world a human order, a more distinct and thoroughgoing thing that, that we will be able to live peacefully with each other. Religions. Uh, God, having a God, like a king, that everybody follows. And say, we'll all follow this one and uh, you know, then we'll all be going the same way and whatever he wants, we'll do. But then, of course, there comes in this... Uh, very different interpretations exactly what God wants us to do and the way he wants us to do it and uh, then the conflicts on the human plane so with religions or beliefs or philosophies which are set up by the mind can also be overturned by the mind whatever our mind creates it can, it can argue about it can overturn and the power of conviction in that is is a is a temporary. It's it's not possible to sustain it as a permanent thing to actually believe, to attach to, 
to hold on to a mind-create, mind-wrought order or state or system. How many systems actually actually work as they're set up to? They always have to be worn in like a pair of shoes, don't they? You see, you set up any kind of system, like in this monastery here. You know, we have a particular kind of routine and a, a vineyard discipline, which is yeah, very good, really, as an, an idea. But it has to be continually molded and shaped and adjusted and, and commented on and explained and the spirit of it has to be taught and the, the right ways to adapt to it and what happens if this goes wrong and somebody gets sick and this breaks down who's going to mow the lawn who's going to cook the food what time should we have the meetings if this is happening or that's happening endless um, needs to adjust and uh, kind of adapt to time and place and one begins to recognize this isn't something wrong with the system this is a system that allows you to do that is in fact the best kind of system a system that doesn't take itself as being an absolute ultimate truth in other words a mind created idea that doesn't establish itself as anything other than a than a rough estimate is perhaps the most accurate one it's humble it's seemingly insignificant but it's the most accurate because it's saying that one can never establish anything on the sensory sphere that will be perfect. We have to always use it according to time and place to what to what this situation provides. So this is always um, in Buddhist monasticism, which is a very ancient form of religion and religious structure. This is a uh, an ongoing tradition, and coming to the West, we have to. Uh, you know, adapt to people using chairs and and uh, what to do if this happens and, and what to do, you know, monks using cars or the Buddha didn't say monks couldn't couldn't uh, use cars so the Buddha didn't say monks couldn't use TV sets what should we do? he didn't say you can't inject heroin Though one has to what reflect off it, off of the just the idea, just off of what the brain can set up, off of what is written in the book, and any system that that works is one that allows one to do this. It's a good thing to consider, like in your own lives, what structures you have created, what kind of routines, what relationships you have, only work if you can if you establish them as an ideal that you'll try to live up to the spirit of it and do the best you can with it like a, a marriage for example if you just have it as as what it says in the ceremony you know always love honor and obey well you know be realistic about it get on with always try to get on with It'd be a better thing to say i will always try my best to get on with you until it gets too much. Then I'll at least try to have a divorce and not squeeze every last penny out of you. <laughs> it doesn't sound so good. But it's more kind of... <laughs> I, will only, I will only squeeze half of you. <laughs> I will not beat you up too often or in front of everybody else <laughs> <laughs> so that these 
these mind wrought systems and structures have to be have to be mellowed out, don't they? In a way that can never really fully be expressed. We have to rely upon our reflective understanding. We have to contemplate just how is this is this working? Are we applying ourselves wisely to it? And this is something that we do anyway. We have to just to get on. You have an idea of what your your marriage should be like, what your um, what your day should be like. You have to continually adjust to it, even what you should be like. In the 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 man or the woman, the the middle-aged man, the middle-aged woman, the young man, the young woman, the executive, the the um, the artist, or whatever. You can't just attach to these notions and expect them to work without reflecting of them. Otherwise, one does get caught up in a tremendous amount of despair, personally, or despair with your marriage, or despair with your job, or despair with your, your monastery, or despair with your society, or despair with the human world, because even though we have this and we have this government, it's still got uh, you know, corruption and violence in it. There's still warfare, there's still this and that. Even though we have medicines, there's still these horrible diseases. Even though we have efficient machinery, there's still these breakdowns and, and mess-ups and accidents and things going wrong. Still something that we haven't quite sorted out. Still another rotten worm in this apple. But for, for someone who wisely reflects, recognises that worms have every right to be in apples. There's nowhere else for them to go. And the apple is a perfect home for a worm. And that the inconstancies and inadequacies of life are far more indigenous to the sensory condition than the kind of ideas of perfection that we rather arrogantly impose upon the world. <laughs> the ideas of perfection on the, on the, in nature, the perfect climate, where one never need complain about the weather, the perfect season, the perfect day, the perfect home, the perfect government, the perfect society, the perfect relationship, the perfect monastery, religion, philosophy, body, perfect mind. What, where does this idea come from? This is, the, this, is this extra dimension of that the human being has that say cats and animals and snails and, and bugs don't have. They just get on. Not that they don't experience pain or that they're a model example to live up to as, as life on this planet. But they don't experience that kind of oppressive, motiveless anguish one feels about when everything is going wrong and I, I don't understand why, why things are going wrong and I feel so stuck with it and oppressed by it because no matter how hard we try, things are still going wrong. The, you know, I still haven't got everything done that I needed to do. I come home from work and I, and, uh, I haven't, the house isn't cleaned properly. And, you know, another thing has let me down. And now you've let me down too. And now my body has let me down and my mind has let me down. It's never quite the way it should be. That kind of, of pain and anguish. Is, is a facet of this extra dimension that creates the notion of perfection. 
the ideal, which we can't seem to stop doing. It's it's uh, the dream. Mankind is is a uh, is a dreaming creature, one that has high aspirations. The mind of a god, the mind that aspires to to perfection, and yet rooted physically in this sensory predicament where perfection just does not exist. It doesn't exist like that. It doesn't exist in the same way. The perfection of a rose is that it's a bud, it blooms, it gets overblown, the petals fall off and it dies. Its perfection is is the way it is. It's like this. So when a, a rose is losing its petals, you can't say to it, you've let me down, you've disappointed me again. Why didn't you stay that way always, after all the manure I gave you? (laughs) Cheated, again, another rotten experience, let me down. It's the way it is. So, one begins to understand that this, this feeling of despair is an aspect that we impose upon uh, the sensory predicament by imagining it to be other than it is. And similarly, that quality in us which can imagine, which can dream, which can aspire, which can reflect, is not something that you have to have, you have to uh, nullify and sometimes people misunderstand Buddhism in this way. They feel that Buddhism means complete inertia and apathy, that you just passively watch yourself rot away. You, know, you just uh, it's live in a state of inertia, saying, well, it's all right if, if the government's going wrong, it's all right if there's sickness, and it's all right if there's violence, and that's all right because everything's a mess anyway, and let's wait for extinction. Nirvana, the ultimate wipeout, the ultimate extinction, where mercifully we don't have to come back here again. But that doesn't lead to to anything like what we what the Buddha meant by peace of mind. It leads to a, a sterilization or a, or a stifling of the mind, a stifling of the instinct. You try, like for even just this five minutes of meditation, to just be accepting. And you see what a struggle it is, isn't it? You can't just do it in an inert way because just even in that five minutes one can sit there and trying to be quiet and then you hear somebody thumping in the kitchen. Oh, how long that's going to go on for? Trying to be quiet. And how many minutes I've been sitting here now for? Is this really as quiet as it's going to get? I wonder if my mind will go quiet. Any moment. I suppose it will go... It just goes on, doesn't it? So if one is just in a state of, of saying, well, everything's all right with me and you know, I mustn't expect anything to be other than wretched and, and unsatisfactory, then one doesn't realise any kind of peace of mind. We, we, we just feel uh, uh, choked. We feel, well, we, we're, not even, we're not even allowing ourselves to complain about it anymore. But ceasing to to express complaint isn't peace of mind. So that in uh, human order, 
sometimes people take this alternative, don't they? They just choke it all down, just repress it all. You just blot out, basically. Something in you is, is screaming, and yet you just swallow it and just ignore. And this is a very common um, escape hatch or, or block for our despair is this way. You see people in, in, in cities where there is a tremendous amount of unpleasant sensory impingement have learnt to block everything. You go to a, a, any, any areas like that, you'll see people don't look at each other. They walk along with their heads down. They're scouring. They're just content. They've just got this thing in the brain going, saying, home, go home, get to station, get ticket, you know, meal will be ready. They're programmed the escape route. Don't get in my way. Don't notice anything. Don't respond to anything. Get out. Just shut everything off. And people do this to an extraordinary degree. And the anguish in the mind, the feeling of the disappointments of the day, the frustrations of it of the day, the sadness of it, or the fear of it, we, what do we do? We come home, put radio on, put a record on, tape, TV, book, conversation, meal, drink, film, whatever. In other words, paste over that with heavy sensory impingement of pleasant and soothing. Cover it large, put a layer of that on top. Distract, in other words, or ignore, move away from. And then one feels a certain um, ease, a certain relief. Now this is the common way, the sensory way to avoid suffering to avoid pain but it, unfortunately it doesn't avoid despair notice in, in this in our lives now when there are in a very uh, many ways to be able to distract oneself to be able to not have to look into the mind, to not contemplate the consequences of today's events contemplate the memories of these these years contemplate the feeling of that argument that frustration that pain that disappointment that fear that anxiety there's so many ways to do it to avoid having to do that it still it creates a a, a kind of restless need to always be putting something into one's mind, into one's life, always consuming some kind of sensory experience through the ear, through the nose, through the tongue. Think about something, read something. In other words, put something in there to cover up the discontented, agitated feeling. It becomes so normal that people, many people don't really even honestly know that there, that there is that discontent I'm alright until maybe you sit for ten minutes quietly and you begin to perceive this is a whole kind of seething movement and then you know, it, it seems to vibrate in the mind and then lo and behold thought comes up, memory comes up feeling comes up 
But what one can detect is a certain compulsiveness about the sensory appetite that we have. Not because we're particularly, at this time or any other time, or or individually greedy or or lustful people, but the sensory appetite of of our lives is, is heightened, isn't it? It's always whipped up. There are many things, many opportunities, and one is encouraged to keep seeking them. Why is this? Why is it that there is so much need to have more when apparently we have so much already? When we have so much development, so much um, acquisition, so much, so many opportunities. Why is there this continual drive and encouragement to seek more? If you're, say, a rice farmer in northeast Thailand, you know, where there really isn't very much opportunity, there's just the wet season, the, the cold season, the hot season, the, you know, water buffalo and, and, and rice in your, your hut. Then actually, although there is, there is very limited opportunities, there's also not much encouragement or drive to have it that many more. It's because we have so much that we need so much more. Because we have so much, we are tending to go out into the sensory consciousness, try to make it feel good, and therefore feel ever more frustrated by it. Because this feeling that one will get it right, one will have it right, one will not have to experience discomfort, waiting, boredom, impatience, frustration or confusion that's what it all is trying to say to you means that that when one still experiences that then it says well just one more and everything will be alright just light up the cigar just drink some rum just get on a buy a new car and everything will be just so tremendous kind of pull and push drive so one can witness this just externally. I'm not talking about anybody personally. You have to judge this for yourself. But just looking at the, at the appearance of our society externally, isn't it one where there is a lot? There is almost too much. If you go into a, a city, it's just a barrage of sensory impingement. And yet in those very places, there's very little encouragement that's saying, here's a way to have less. Here's a way to put aside some. Here's a way. It's always those places are the place where they're saying, look, here's more. Here's more, and more, and more, and more. The two go together, don't they? So the, the, our, even in the midst of experiencing uh, profound and, and uh, stimulating sensory experience, the feeling of, of need for more is heightened. So this is this is the the kind of deepest the despair of those who have a lot. Something in you recognizes, begins to see that all this isn't is has a rather hollow ring to it, and one is starts being caught on the wheel whereby we are seeking more, seeking more, seeking more all the time and getting rather feverish about it, getting rather desperate about it. Somebody's bleeping.
the robot, please leave the room. Yet it is in these um, situations that one sees now people um, experiencing a movement towards the spiritual realm, towards spiritual solutions. I think for um, most of us Western monks, extraordinary, isn't it, that uh, sophisticated Westerners with university degrees who been doing this and been doing that and quite refined or expertise in some way or another take on a, a form of, of you know, hidebound orthodoxy in a traditional form that was created two and a half thousand years ago and most, uh, its most updated model belongs to the rural provinces of northeast Thailand uh, where you're living on, on one meal a day living very simple. This kind of movement towards the simple, towards not getting very much out of the sensory life, towards not even having a very great, profound, wonderful, inspiring form to live in. Like, and Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, is quite... Just as a form, it's all right, but there are all kinds of, of, of inadequacies about it. Like it doesn't have a very profound social welfare program going for it. It doesn't have very libertarian ideals. It's hierarchical. It's distinctly um, masculine-oriented. It's not independent. You can't, you know, um, grow your own food or do anything ethnic like that. You can't be organic. You can't even be vegetarian. So that all these things that one feels a certain regret about. Like, uh, when I first um, encountered Buddhism, I thought, well, Zen would be nicer because Zen monasteries, they're really beautiful. This is what you think, anyway, until you go to one, I guess. <laughs> and they, they, they would do calligraphy and sweep gravel and do neat things like that and say these really wise, witty things in, in haiku. And everything is just impeccable. And, and then I was living in this monastery where there was muck all over the place and empty milk cans and old stray dogs wandering around eating the, eating the rubbish that was just piled up around you. And you'd sit in a, in a hut sweating. And it wasn't seem very inspiring or new or, or with it or getting anywhere or progressive or creating any kind of solutions. So just not only on the physical level of the sense, it was even on the intellectual side of the sensory world, it was a little bit disappointing. Something where one had to give up a lot of one's intellectual um, thirst, one's, uh, one's idealism. And yet, with that, a, a feeling of a kind of faith, or confidence, or, or this, looks like a, this looks like a good direction to go. This feels somehow something strangely comforting about this to not have to be the best, to not have to be the one and only, to not have to be the new, the most scintillating, the most wonderful, 
the most you know, uplifting, which is what? Which is the kind of advertisement for the philosophical mind, isn't it? Don't make do with an old religion, here's a new one. So that uh, it just even on the religious level, one sees this, this like in America now, new religion every other day, a new, new sect for fundamental Christianity of different kinds of, of, of yoga, of Eastern religions. Why? It's really the same sort of thing, isn't it? Now you've got your two, your two swimming pools centrally heated, your car, video, private helicopter, um, you know, ranch, 500-acre, 5,000-acre ranch ponies, also now get enlightened too. Well, you can get these neat, neat uh, things where you can sit on without any pain. And you can you can pick your religion of the day. You can have a tape, a video of it. You don't have to move. And <laughs> you know, and you can imbibe it all. And one can naturally then pick the one that's got the most inspiring, up-to-date thing in it. So that can consider that that kind of uh, feeling. And um, the spiritual quest actually is is one that you have to even put aside expecting a religious form or religious appearance to be perfect and satisfying and thing that you feel totally delighted with and is the one and only and the best and better than everybody else. It's exactly the same kind of mind image and it's coming from the same space as that in us which expects today's car, which expects this house, which expects this marriage to be you know, the one, the great, the one and only that will last forever and never let me down. It's the same kind of attitude, isn't it? And to make, to really resolve despair, the despair that comes when you, you always are finding yet another state has let you down, there has to be a total change around of our attitude towards one where we're not expecting the sensory consciousness to provide us with anything more than the foundation within which we will fulfil our humanity by putting something into it. Not because it deserves it or it's going to make it wonderful, but just because this is, this is what the human being is best suited for. This is the way that human being feels best. This is the way that human being no longer feels chained and oppressed by, by, the, by the world. They feel encouraged by it. They feel a sense of zest, a feeling of positive application a feeling of, yes, we can, we can work with this, and feeling enthusiastic to work with something. Now, this attitude is a very positive one, and I'm saying that, that essentially what the Buddha was teaching was not uh, uh, inertia for peace of mind, but qualities of right effort, right application, skillful means, the fine balance between what the spiritual path is about and what seeking for perfection on the worldly level is about is that one is one is the spiritual path is essentially that of giving bringing something forth from this one from the mind from that reflective aspect of the mind from that other faculty that I've talked about bringing forth the patience when there is 
restlessness, bringing forth love when there is aversion, bringing forth um, tolerance when there is prejudice. So in other words, the, the, that reflective quality responds to the situation rather than reacts to it. So rather than just going into a complaint about, about experience saying, it's not as good as. I've tried so hard, but it's still not. It, it, it's, you know, that, that comparing aspect, which is just the reaction, we begin to respond. So that, that the spiritual path is one where there's this quality of giving, of offering, of bringing something forth into the sensory consciousness, rather than saying to, to our environment, make me happy, and do it as quickly as possible. And this is the difference. The external results may not be that dramatic or even that different, apparently. When the illusion of uh, the reactive worldly states of mind are that one gets a, a quick and immediate effect. We get rid of the unsatisfactory quickly, immediately, and seemingly completely. You wipe out the green fly, you um, destroy the disease, you annihilate the enemy, so you get this immediate feeling of success and progress and then when they come back again <laughs> when the green fly get replaced by the black fly or something else a feeling of irritation, anger and despair so that, that uh, with the spiritual path you have to look at things much more broadly to say that when we are learning to say be a bit more patient with the limitations of it then our expectations are more realistic. We recognise, well, there's a certain amount of cabbages you're going to lose this year to the rabbits. So that's the way it is. You have to learn to adapt to that. There's a certain amount of... of uh, um, it doesn't mean that, that, but that you're just feeling hopeless about it. You're actually seeing what's the, what's the best thing to do with this situation. How can one work with it? What can one do with it? Can we learn to live with less, for example? Do we need so much? If it's so much struggle to get things, do we need so much? Do we need, do we need to expect to, you know, to such a high standard of health or mental acumen? Our society is one where there's a very high standard of, of, of intelligence and competence that's required that we can't always meet or match up to. So if you don't, you get kind of hived off as being a bit dim or slow and gradually that that feeling of being unwanted, of being helpless, of being alienated makes you feel that's what you are and you get more depressed and less encouraged and less willing to do anything and the whole problem magnifies, doesn't it? So in, in this uh, reflective way of, of actually adapting to to circumstances and see what is the most important thing for a human being to do what can, what can we 
they expect? What can we? Uh, where can we create our peace, our happiness? And this is done essentially through bringing forth what we can into the world and by reflecting on that, that spirit, that in us which can do good, that in us which can be wise, that in us which can be patient, which can be loving. And this is a, a treasure that's so wonderful in its own right that we're able to endure. We recognize life is difficult, but we can bear with it because it no longer becomes the central focus of our attention. Like li- living as a, as, a, as a monk, to someone who, who doesn't see this, know this very well, or, or look at, or uh, it looks like you're, you're living a very um, difficult life. You know, to people who don't meditate or, or practice, think, well, you don't, you know, what are you doing in the evening? You don't have TV, you don't dance, you don't drink, you don't eat. There's something against eating. There's no, no fun, no... No. Miserable way to live. And it would be, of course, if you didn't use... If, if, your, if your practice was just about repressing everything. If you didn't actually make your life so vastly richer by the power of attention, application, effort, kindness, patience, sensitivity, that these things don't matter. You don't need that many things. It's not that you're trying to reject them, it's just you don't need it. Because you're getting so much out of just simple things like looking after each other, like chanting, like just sitting and being with your breath. It's so much more a an enriching experience than, than say, watching, a, watching the TV or going to a show. It's not that you're really giving up anything. You're actually allowing yourself to act, have access to freedom. And then one sees that these things don't really, it doesn't really matter so much if I'm not always perfectly healthy. This is, well, you know, it's in the background. It doesn't really matter so much if I don't get my own way all the time. If I can't do what I want. If I can't go here, if I can't go there. If I, if I have to ask permission to leave and the monastery. I, nev- I, never, I can never say, I'm going off today. I have to say, may I, do I have permission to? And most of the times one never even asks. You just go where you're sent. You say, go to this country, go to there, go off to give a talk here, give a talk here, give a talk there. Talk on making peace with despair today. <laughs> Not my idea, my choice, my time. You just, but it doesn't matter. You think, well, why not? It's the same as anything else, isn't it? It's all peripheral. The sensory world we recognize is just, it's just out there somewhere. It's not something that you find yourself abiding in so that you no longer feel it it's a deep and burning issue. It's something that you use, they will practice on it. You have to give, go and give a talk, you don't know what to say, well just use that as a way of making peace with that feeling of inadequacy. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. That you're always using the inadequacies of the body and mind and the, and the sensory experience to top up, to 
developed something that, that will balance that out so you find that the very limitations of life are continually in making you fuller and richer because you, you make up for it by the, the presence of the spirit, the presence of the mind, the presence of awareness where there is aversion one puts kindness where there is the feeling of failure we put in comfort and ease where there's the feeling of agitation we put in calm where there's restlessness we put in patience so that life is difficult there are, I'm not, not saying there isn't violence or restlessness or fear or anything to be frightened of or anything to have uh, to feel painful about but that all these we just see as, as opportunities not to be bound by them but to, to use them for liberation to recognize this place if you're getting hurt by it, if you're getting stuck with it it's because somehow or another you're holding on to it you're expecting it, you're thinking this is what you are, do you have control over it and you can say what's going to happen in it and you're wrong it doesn't work that way you, don't, you can't do that you can't do that for one moment even to your own body how can you do it to, to the world or your life you can't do it for one moment to your mind to the thing that you most constantly think is yours and what you are Try to make it be something. Be happy. Be clear. Be bright. It won't do it. But if one steps back, if one gives heart, if one gives willingness, if one gives attention, it clears by itself. And then certainly there are difficulties, but that feeling of being stuck with an undigestible throatful with an unpalatable morsel with something you can't swallow you can't spit out and you, you can't tolerate that vanishes and this, this is the, the um, practice of what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths the heart of, of the religious transformation of the sensory world into the spiritual one of the feeling of limitation and mortality into freedom and deliverance through these teachings the Four Noble Truths so that in one's meditation when we get right back to, to, to actually feeling where does this, this despond where does the hurt actually hit you not where, what it is on, or why it should or shouldn't be or what you're going to do about it but in meditation or just in the awareness of the mind you bring your attention to where is that feeling and just what what is it it's wanting things to be other than they are isn't it and you, you abide with that feeling you can feel the feeling of despair arising in the mind when things are going wrong things are going difficult, difficult things are becoming chaotic things are seeming you'll never get it done you won't get it done on time people you'll fail and this kind of panic that arises you can contemplate that feelings just bubbling up and rather than repress it or just plaster over it with some other kind of sensory impingement you just watch and keep your heart keep your attention in a place where it can actually allow that to be and this is a skillful way in which one defuses 
the anxiety of the world, where it actually hits you. And this is something that, that doesn't take 2,000 years of history to do. It doesn't take a massive technology to do or a massive civilization to do. It requires an incredible civilization of the, of the instinct. But that's possible in one lifetime or a few years to at least understand and have some fluency on the path. So this is what I would like to offer for your uh, consideration and reflection today on this topic. And if you'd like to sit quietly for a, a few minutes and then um, to start questions or ongoing talk. Anybody have any questions? I know exactly, I mean, I followed what you're saying. Um, it's not like that. It just kind of comes as the darker side of ourselves perhaps. And I think there really are dark sides there. I mean, they're, they're not just petty irritations in the world that bother us, but really the great, major dreadful things that go on and have always gone. And demonic energies that human beings have and brutality. Well, the very 
depressing kind of picture because so often one just feels one can't one can't even relate to it. It seems so inexplicable the things that people do to each other or do to the animals or do to the planet. Though that the there's the horror and then the the feeling of 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 being unable to do anything about it, also which is what it makes it all so depressing because you begin to recognise that if you just like annihilate that, then it it doesn't really get rid of it; it just pops up somewhere else. It tends to to be a kind of constant feature. But that's what human beings have to to realise and that there is a a positive way of of dealing with that but it's not through the way that it causes us to react powerful demonic energies tend to make us feel either uh, frightened and helpless or angry and counter you know, we, we react strongly against them, and those are the the two ways that they that they in they throw us off balance. So that when, as long as we approach them with those kind of feelings or moods, those are the moods that, that they naturally induce in our in our minds. The kind of responses that naturally come up. The more uh, skillful response is to see that the this, that is a, is a kind of result of, of extreme ignorance, of extreme delusion, extreme like a mania that comes when, he, when the human beings have, have access to a lot of, of different levels, a lot of different channels if you like and that we can tune into some very hellish states. Why we do that is more to the point. Why, we ch- why in some way we choose, why we seek that out, what in us finds that so uh, fascinating at times. Like why, why so-called normal people can, can, can do that, those kind of horrible bestial things is really because they haven't realized or had any taken any opportunity to 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 see something better to know something better you know that the it's like violence for example is very attractive because it has a sense of it of 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 immediacy to it. It's a, it's 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 unlimited. Why people do things of apparently motiveless violence? Because when you you know if you're living within just the the, uh, the confines of, of social order, the confines of 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 a, of a human life, and this sensory appetite, this restlessness, this kind of seeking for more doesn't everything to go to 
then the one one way out is 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 that is to break entirely out of the system that kind of anarchic force in us that which is finds a lot of delight in doing that is in is in seeking out that which is dangerous which is violent which is horrifying because at least in that moment the mind is made incredibly keen it has no future it has no past it has no boundaries there's no there's no shame there's no restraint there's no restriction there's a kind of you know why that's so delightful is because it, it has a feeling of of freedom to it of boundlessness you know when you, you see this sort of thing occurring just in a uh, kind of on a, on a much more socially acceptable level at, at a football match you know, people kind of really it doesn't have to get very far before it turns into something that's that's pretty brutal and it's fairly normal people so-called normal people like some of the, the the kind of weird rapists are often just you know married men with who drive trucks or you know bank clerks or whatever they kind of do these most horribly manic ghastly atrocious things to people and yet their 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 daily life is is really humdrum and and you think that actually fits because it's 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 when they seek that out as some way of 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 living a life of of dark but but heightened vitality there's a kind of dark vitality to it quickness to it a sense of of immediacy because in in an act of violence and atrocity you're discarding the future, the past, the society, every kind of norm, every kind of of uh, of framework. There's a kind of heightened heightened self-consciousness when there's nothing else that really matters apart from you at this moment. And it's the kind of it's the it's the opposite extreme of the enlightened state. You know when when. The only thing that really matters is 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 the is the totality. It's just the heightened experience of just this one moment, this this person here. Nothing else counts for it. Now, people, you know, why why it's so difficult to to um, to counteract that is because the world just doesn't have enough indications. People don't have enough indications of the joy of selflessness, of the of the the freedom that's possible through through actually not breaking out of of uh, of the bounds of, of shame or restriction or rules or regulations, but but abandoning that instinct in that that kind of self instinct. As, and it's not even these. Another telling feature is these, these atrocious actions are not just done by kind of primitive people. People living, say, kind of simple, rustic lives where you, you don't. You always think, oh, these are too stupid, bestial people don't know any better. It's often in in um, in highly civilized societies, like in in America, for example. Somebody told me there was this recent case of a, of a man who who trapped or captured four women 
when you had them chained up and you used to electrocute and you killed one and you chopped her up and, and fed her to the others. It's kind of it's almost un- unbelievable uh, uh, atrociousness. And that somebody who's obviously been through the whole of the, the uh, social system, this kind of mature <laughs> adult person living in a place where there's where there's ample, where the one would have thought that there's a fair degree of refinement and sensibility. But that occurs because the the structures of our lives are often those which don't really encourage, don't ask us to bring anything forth, don't really ask us to come forth, don't ask us to put anything into it. So where life is very, it's all set up and structured, but really you're spoon-fed by it and you're programmed by it, you become like a rat in a maze. This in us, which seeks, you know, which in a in a responsible person seeks wisdom or enlightenment, seeks the way out that way, when it's in a in a mind that has no understanding or no way of perceiving that. It doesn't have to be stupid, but just um, no uh, spiritual sign, no no spiritual indication, no, nothing in no no. There's never been any kind of, of recognition of a of a spiritual reality there. That it tends to go out in that way. But just on the on a more socially acceptable level, most people will seek release through a state of excitement. It's not it's one would say it was kind of bestial or atrocious, but it it's certainly a step away from we don't we don't feel when we're in a kind of excited state like you're drunk or you're, you're caught up, you're stimulated, you're excited. You tend to be a bit more irresponsible, carefree, less clear, less, ca- less careful about what you say. And in fact, it's socially accepted that you can do this and it's necessary to kind of let your hair down, you know, let it hang out, have a good time, have a bit of a rip-up. When you, you know, drive fast cars, if you're a young man, you're supposed to kind of have a bit of a wild time, really. Otherwise, you're not normal. It's a way of kind of letting out that that frustrated, aggressive instinct. Now, that's just say a millimeter or so on a path that that other example is 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 like a you know a hundred yards long. But it's really the same direction. Why is it that we seek release from our feeling of of frustration or boredom or inadequacy? deadness of our lives through, excite, through, through sensory excitement. And if you do follow that, then it, it just gets quite, it has its own lo- logic to it, that will in fact, which, which indicates that the more provocative, the more bizarre, the more outrageous that form of excitement is, the greater the release, the greater the freedom, the greater, the more one will have, have um, broken out of the deadness of life, because life is very dead if you have no, if there is no awareness, if there's no spirituality in it. It's a, it's a life of habit, it's a life of, of dealing with things as if they're inert objects rather than having any sensitivity towards them. And this insensitivity is most highly developed in, in sophisticated societies where we don't have to be sensitive. Like in a, in a simple 
rural society, you have to be a bit more sensitive. You have to respond to the weather. You have to respond to the climate. You have to learn to get on with each other in a little village. You can't just avoid. You've got to learn to respond. But where there's no need to respond because you can avoid, you can switch off, you can turn away, you become increasingly less... uh, less of a responsive subject. You tend to just treat everything as an object that you want to go this way or to be that way, including people. You use people for your own pleasure, for your own gratification. And eventually you use yourself like that. You use your body like that. People do that to some extent. And it gets worse. Because we have encouraged a feeling that w- that to have to respond to nature is a, is a nuisance and a waste of time and an inconvenience. It's much better to just make it obey, make it obey us. Now, when we say experience, and then for just on the internal level, when one experiences anguish, dismay, or frustration, then rather than have to respond to that, open up to it, work with it, then we're encouraged to to just drown it out, to escape from it. And as this cycle builds up, as it kind of progresses, you know, because the more that you avoid, the more that it just builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up, a feeling of not not wanting to bother, a feeling that one there's, that it's all hopeless. Then the result is that there is a um, a greater uh, block against opening up and seeking distraction in wild and wilder kind of sensory sensory experiences. That's on a kind of individual level. You get whole societies will do that too. Um, It's it's often a way in which, like wars, for example, crusades, things where there's a certain mania behind, a certain kind of cause. In it, often there are are seemingly engendered a way of expressing and sending out and projecting out the discontent of that society. The the the, the uh, complaint the inadequacies of that society can be channeled into a war. And it's it's pretty common means. So that the personal and the collective uh, discontent can then find their outlet by abandoning every kind of restraint. Well, it depends what you mean by human being, really. I mean, <laughs> uh, what, what is the essential core unit of a human being? You know, that you say that everything is, is dissociated from a human being, really. In one, one way, 
if you, you know, the quality, the, the constant feature of a, of a human being is awareness, the only constant quality to it. You know, we have our ups and downs, our, our knowledge and our, our, our ignorance, or our, our not knowing, spaces in our knowledge, our happiness and unhappiness. You know, there's the good and the evil side, the kind of brutal instincts and the nurturing instincts come and go. But I find it useful to think of a human being like the quality of awareness as being like an, an exceptionally uh, refined and broad-ranging receiver that can pick up these different impulses, which you know are part of the sensory sphere, like the sensory world, you know, the sensory environment, the sensory consciousness. When consciousness gets born on the sensory plane, it's attuned to all these different vibrations. You know, some are like the, the, the instinct in nature to nurture and cherish and, and look after, the instinct in nature to destroy. You know, two powerful forces in nature, aren't they? And we can pick up either of those. But essentially, the, the one constant feature of a human being is that they have this possibility to reflect upon it and to either associate or dissociate at will. Now even in states of, uh, you know, when things seem to get unbearable, there is something in one that can choose. There's a kind of something in one which can just kind of decide to follow that or can step back. So that, um, like, even when in the most brutal conditions, people can actually follow that, or they can step back. You notice somebody get, when people get hysterical, that there's actually a way they can snap out of that. There's, there's somewhere along the line has to be there's a kind of inner choice that one wants to something one wants to just fall into that, wants to indulge in it, wants to follow it but we can always step out of it. So that the, the, like these people who commit atrocious acts of brutality are quite capable of not doing so. You know, they can turn it off. I mean, they don't have to act upon it, they may still be attuned to it, but there has to be, a, a, there's, a, there's somewhere along the line an instinctive wanting to follow that. And that's what it seems that one can do something about. You can't really expect the sensory world not to have a brutal vibration in it, not to have violent, a violent aspect to it. But there, a human being has the possibility to hear that minutes of, of, of meditation begin this afternoon with we might very well conclude with is an essential part of this, uh, this topic 
because it's this question of despair and making peace with despair is is a profoundly religious spiritual one. It's one that doesn't involve uh, or cannot be resolved through making the world a different place or for making um, existence different from the way that it is, which is the which has been the normal movement of civilization that's on the external level. But this is a, a matter of understanding where, not just difficulties arise, but where the feeling of being oppressed by them actually occurs. Not where there is sickness, where there is violence, where there are problems in the world, which we can, which we can always point out, which are which are numerous and come and go with time, but where that feeling of being bound to it, oppressed by it, really occurs, and how constant that feeling is, even when in a situation such as a few moments of meditation, there really isn't anything particularly dreadful happening, or anything that one can't expect, anything that one can really say is, is unfair or unjust or shouldn't be the way it is. Uh, for those of you who have practiced meditation to any degree will recognize this sign of feeling oppressed, feeling bound, feeling stuck with. Um, and the, the despair or the pain or the difficulty that arises through just being stuck with something that you don't like, even if that thing is not in itself so particularly um, huge. Just being stuck with a, a mind that has a, a painful memory in it. If we, if we looked at the problems of the world and said, you know, there's disease, there's warfare, there's hunger, we wouldn't really say normally that memory it should be a great campaign to eradicate painful memories from the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. Or thinking. People can experience despair just through thinking when they don't want to think. They're having a mind that's restless, uncertain, unsteady, through being in a state of doubt, and not quite knowing what to do. So that the ways that we can experience uh, conflict discontentment are numerous, the feeling of being oppressed by it, being bound down by it, struggling with it, is essentially a spiritual one, one that occurs in what we can call the mind, the heart, the soul, the spirit, some kind of inner, inner quality of, the, of the, the psyche, some aspect that perhaps animals don't have a reflective quality, something that actually steps back from experience and says, I don't like this, this shouldn't be this way, stop this, and an extra dimension that can become rather like a, like a cancer, an extra dimension of the mind that can become a, a painful malignant tumour, which uh, we feel oppressed by. Now this experience uh, can be 
being, being oppressed by it, as I said, can be uh, triggered off by innumerable things. And contrary-wise, the aim of religion, 